Good afternoon, and welcome to Calvary's Way, a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. Calvary's Way, recorded live at Calvary Chapel, is a Bible study taught by Pastor Gib Allen. Today, in our continuing study of the book of Acts, we come to chapter 5, verse 29. Once again, as you get your Bibles, Acts chapter 5, verse 29. Last time we saw that an angel of the Lord freed the apostles from prison. After the apostles were freed, they went to the temple and taught the people about Jesus. The Sanhedrin found the apostles and told them not to teach in the name of Jesus. Let's see how Peter and the apostles respond as we resume our study in Acts chapter 5, verse 29. Well, now Peter is going to give a testimony of great boldness in contrast to the Sanhedrin, who were more concerned about man's opinion than they were about God's. Verse 29, But Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than men. Now, the translations that we are using, both the Old King James and the New King James translation, is a little unfortunate here, because obeying God is not some kind of an optional obligation. Literally, it is we must obey God rather than men. God help us that we would experience and feel in our own hearts that divine imperative. I must obey God. Unfortunately, we often take a very careless attitude in the area of obedience. We say, well, yes, I should be obeying, or yes, I I know I probably should obey God here. Yes, I know that I should. That's not the way these men felt. It was much deeper with them. They said we must obey God rather than man. Peter goes on, verse 30. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you murdered by hanging on a tree. Him God has exalted to his right hand to be prince and savior, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are his witnesses to these things. And so also is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. Peter emphasized the same three points that he had used when he had addressed the Sanhedrin in chapter 4 regarding the healing of the lame man. Number one, he and the apostles must obey God, not men, including the Sanhedrin. Secondly, Jesus Christ is God's Messiah, and he is alive. And thirdly, he is living in us. And now verse 33, when they heard this, they were furious and they plotted to kill them. The rage of the Sadducees and the Pharisees burned so furiously at hearing those things again that their previous caution about killing them went out the window. The word furious here actually means that they were torn asunder or sawn apart in their anger. You see, they had such tremendous conviction in their hearts. It cut them to the quick. But they did not respond to the conviction, but their hearts were hardened. And it says they plotted to kill them. That is, with resoluteness of will, they were determined to do it. Now, this is a great example of the fact that man is in the grip of forces beyond his knowledge, evil forces which are implacably opposed to the will and the purpose and the love of God. Whenever truth is uttered, it enrages men like this. They oppose it with the only weapon that they can think of, physical violence. 
This explains the fact that whenever the gospel goes, wherever it goes, it not only invites men, it not only attracts men and redeems men, but it also enrages others. It is always a very disturbing thing. But God wants us to look beyond the immediate opposition of men and understand that the opposition would never occur if it were not for the existence of certain evil forces working behind mankind. As it says in Ephesians 6, verse 12, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness, in the heavenly places. That is where the opposition and hostility is coming from. And if you do not view the opposition to the gospel from that point of view, you will never understand life. You cannot explain what occurs in history unless you understand it from that point of view. There are evil forces at work. And how do you explain all of the evil that is going on today? Murder rape, robbery. How do you explain that? It is because there are evil forces at work. People are controlled, as Ephesians 2 verse 1 tells us, people are controlled by the prince of the power of the air, those that are not redeemed. They're controlled. There is a force that is working in their lives. A few months ago, when we were here on a Sunday night, Somebody took all of their trash and all of their garbage and threw it against our office door. They didn't just leave it in the bags. I mean, they emptied it there. What causes that? I mean, how do you explain that? Well, it's because there are evil forces, you see, that work behind mankind, that work in their lives. Not last night, but the night before, Friday night, we had somebody break into our office. And uh, and they did some damage. They They must have done it with a crowbar and... And uh, they stole about six or $7,000 worth of equipment. And all of that stuff is replaceable. And we're thankful for that. We're so thankful that they didn't take a lot of other things that they could have taken. We think maybe they got scared off somewhere along the line. But how do you explain that? How, I mean, how can we explain that? You see, it's because there are evil forces at work. We don't wrestle against mankind you see, against flesh and blood, but against principalities and against powers and against the rulers of the darkness of this age. Now, that in no way is saying that in any way I would believe that there is some kind of a satanic attack against the church. I don't believe that at all. But I know that what causes people to do things like that is because there are evil forces at work. It's the only way that we can explain it. Well, verse 34, then one in the council stood up a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in respect by all the people and commanded them to put the apostles outside for a little while. Now, Gamaliel was one of the most outstanding teachers in Jewish history. His name means the reward of God. And he was a Pharisee. That was the group traditionally opposed to the Sadducees. And unlike the Sadducees, the Pharisees believed in the miraculous. They believed in resurrection. He was the grandson of Hillel, who was the famed founder of the liberal school of Jewish law. Not only that, he was a doctor of the law, which means that he secured as much formal training in the law as was possible. 
and he was so respected and so loved that he was given the title Rabban, which is above the title of rabbi. He was a master, and it is said that he was the first of only seven men ever given that title. And of course, he was the famed teacher of Saul of Tarsus, who later became the Apostle Paul. Verse 35, and he said to them, men of Israel, take heed to yourselves what you intend to do regarding these men. For some time ago, Thutis rose up, claiming to be somebody. A number of men, about 400, joined him. He was slain, and all who obeyed him were scattered and came to nothing. Now, nobody really knows anything about Thutis, so we can't say anything about him. Verse 37, After this man, Judas of Galilee rose up in the days of the census, and he drew away many people after him. He also perished, and all who obeyed him were dispersed. And now I say to you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this work is of men, it will come to nothing. But if it is of God, you cannot overthrow it, lest you even be found to fight against God. Gamaliel had a wait and see attitude. Don't act, but wait. Now here's his counsel. If it is not of God, it will die out. If it is of God, you can't stop it. Now that might sound logical, but it's not theological. Certainly for his purposes, this was the providence of God, but it is not good counsel. Because you presuppose by this kind of thinking that anything that is of God will grow rapidly and anything that is not of God will not. You've got a real problem with that because the fastest growing religion in the world today is not Christianity, but Islam. And you have cults that are rising in ranks into the millions. And if you were to follow his thinking, you would say, well, it's of God, you know. You don't want to stop something if it's of God. No. Listen, Gamaliel and the rest of these men had enough evidence of the resurrection of Jesus Christ to examine it and to scrutinize it more than just say, well, let's just see what happens here. But they rejected the evidence. Gamaliel really became a fence sitter. He took a neutral position. But his argument won the day, verse 40. And they agreed with him. And when they had called for the apostles and beaten them, they commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. When we read that, we don't get the impact of what happened there at all. The word beaten in the Greek is dero, and it actually means to skin, just like, the, like you would skin an animal. From the term to skin, the word came to mean to flay, to scourge. The scourge, called a scorpion, was a whip made with leather thongs. All up and down the thongs were hooks or jagged pieces of metal. And the back of the sufferer was stripped, and the executioner, with all of his strength, brought down the scorpion on the back of the victim. After the first blow, often the skin would open all the way to the bone. Now, they got 39 lashes, and the Apostle Paul said that he was beaten like this five times. And that was the beating endured by our Lord before he was crucified. History records that often a felon sentenced to crucifixion died under this beating before there was ever any opportunity to nail him to his cross. 
Now, the term dero, beaten, translated into the English language, means skinned alive. Now watch. Verse 41. So they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. It's unbelievable. These men who were wiping the blood away and crippled because of the terrible trauma and tragedy that they had just experienced were rejoicing in the Lord. Wiping the blood and praising God, they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. Some 300 years later, at the Council of Nicaea in A.D. 325, pastors and bishops were brought together for the first worldwide conference after they had just gone through the terrible Diocletian persecution. They gathered there from the ends of the empire to honor and to praise the Lord. Some of them had their tongues cut out. Some of them had their eyes gouged out. Some of them had their ears cut off. Some of them had their hands cut off. Some of them had their fingers cut off. Almost all of them were maimed, mutilated, and scarred. Think of an assembly like that, gathered in the name of the Lord, to praise the Lord. You see, they were like these apostles before them, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name, still saying, this is the life. This is the only life. And just to read the account of the devotion and the selflessness of these apostles humbles us. I mean, what poor and selfish servants we are compared to these men who suffered so much agony and shame. Well, they've been skinned, and they have been commanded not to speak in the name of Jesus ever again. Verse 42, and daily in the temple and in every house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Winston Churchill said, a fanatic is someone who can't change his mind and won't change the subject. And that's what these guys did. They wouldn't change their minds and they didn't change the subject. Knowing that Jesus is life, they kept talking about them wherever they went. They kept saying, this is the life. This is what living is all about. And may this be the pattern for our lives. For we have also been set free so that we may proclaim all the words of this life, the only life, life in Jesus Christ. A young man got engaged to this young woman and he had never met the parents before. And uh, so they, the parents invited them over to dinner and they were having dinner. And then after dinner, the father of the young woman brought the young man into the drawing room to talk with him and to talk about the plans that he had with his life with his daughter. And they went in there and he said, so what are your plans? Uh, the young man said, I am a biblical scholar. Biblical scholar, admirable. But what will you do to provide a nice home for my daughter to live in as she certainly deserves? Well, he said, I will study and uh, God will provide for us. He said, well, how will you buy her a beautiful engagement ring that she deserves? And he says, well, I will just concentrate on my studies and God will provide for us. And so the father said, well, what about the children? 
How will you support your children? He said, oh, don't worry, sir. He said, um, God will provide. Well, the conversation just continued that way. Every time he would ask a question, the young man always insisted that God would provide. Well, later that evening, after this young man had left, the mother asked the father how the discussion went. And uh, she said, so how did it go? And the father said, well, he has no job and he has no plans, but the good news is he thinks I'm God. He might have been a biblical scholar. I mean, he might have had a lot of knowledge about the Bible, but he certainly did not have a lot of wisdom. And you know, those two things need to always go together. And that was something that the early church needed. Not only knowledge, but wisdom. They needed wisdom because storm clouds were beginning to rise in the church, and it was crucial that they handled it properly. We see that in this section of scripture that we have come to this morning in our Acts adventure, Acts chapter six. Now in Acts chapter six, there are a few things happening. Number one, God is at work. But number two, if you were to pull back the spiritual curtain, you would see that the devil also is at work. Now think about it. A few times now, Satan has been unsuccessful in stopping the church. He tried through outward persecution, it didn't work the church just grew. Every time they were persecuted, the church grew in numbers and in strength. He tried, secondly, by infiltration or corruption, Ananias and Sapphira, bringing hypocrisy into the church. God's response, he judges those two, fear then comes upon the church, the church is pure once again, and then the church grows. And now we have the third technique, sort of related to the second one. Satan has two basic ploys, an outward attack and an inward attack. He tries, first of all, to intimidate you through some kind of persecution. If that doesn't work, then he will try corruption. A third tactic that is related to this second one, an inward movement of Satan in the church, is division. Division, dissension, and distraction. Get people to fight each other in the church and create a diversion so that all of our energy is focused on the diversion. All of our energy is then focused on the conflict. And what happens? Then the church loses its energy, its energy to love, its energy to evangelize, its energy to build each other up, and its energy to worship. All of its energy is now spent on a few people who are arguing and fighting. It is called spiritual entropy. There is a loss of energy in a closed system. And so, as we come to Acts chapter six, we see this third tactic of Satan at work. It is a story of dissension, the attempt on the enemy's part to divide the church by envy and misunderstanding. And one of the favorite tricks of the evil one is to create dissension among God's people. It begins in verse one, now in those days, when the number of the disciples was multiplying. Now, though the church had started with 120 disciples in the upper room, it now is a place where there were literally thousands of people who have come to the Lord, probably in excess of 10,000 people at this point. Now, in those days, when the number of the disciples was multiplying, there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. Two different 
groups of people responded to the Holy Spirit's ministry through the proclamation of the gospel by the apostles. First of all, there were the Hebrews. That is, they were the Jews that were born and raised in Palestine. They spoke Aramaic, the language that had come down from their ancient Hebrew language. They rejected all Gentile and Greek culture completely and used only the Hebrew Bible in its original Hebrew language. And these Hebrew or Palestinian Jews were so inclusive, they were so closely knit, that they despised all Gentiles and Gentile culture. They actually despised and cursed the Gentiles, believing that the Gentiles were cursed eternally by God. This hatred even included the Grecian Jews who had been relocated to other lands by the Romans. These Grecian Jews were known as the Hellenists. These were Jews who had been scattered deported and dispersed all over the world by the Romans, and many of them would return then back to Jerusalem at the great feast of either Passover or Pentecost, and apparently some of them had been converted on the day of Pentecost or soon thereafter, and then they decided maybe to stay in Jerusalem, not go back home, but to stay in Jerusalem. The Grecian or Hellenist Jews had adopted Greek culture. They spoke the Greek language only and used and read the Greek Bible, which is called the Septuagint. Now, the Hebrew Jews, having always been taught to reject and despise anything Grecian, were probably having difficulty getting rid of all of their prejudice. No doubt God had worked in their hearts to cleanse them of prejudice, but they apparently were still hanging on to some of those feelings against the Hellenists. Maybe they felt that the Hellenists or the Grecian Jews were not due as much attention or as many rights as they were. Prejudice is always an ugly thing, isn't it? It is a horrible thing. And it is sad to see someone who has a wall of prejudice in his life that would keep the love from flowing out and being extended to another human being. Any kind of prejudice is wrong. Whenever there is prejudice, there is a feeling of being superior. And how much more ugly is it when it is in the church? And here in the early church, as some people would think, the perfect church, there is a problem, and the problem is prejudice. Now, there is a tendency in human nature, even after conversion, to split the fellowship into factions with different emphasis. What the Lord has brought together, we put asunder. I mean, think of just a few of the examples that we have today. The rifts between the pietists and the social activists, between the evangelicals and the traditional church people, between the high church advocates and the low church advocates, between the charismatics and the people who believe that all of the gifts were just for apostolic times, between the traditional church musicians and the advocates of contemporary church music, and between the intellectuals and the rationalists, and it just goes on and on and on. It is the tyranny of the either or. It is bringing to the gospel our previous conditioning and wanting it all our way in affirmation of previous experience of royalties. And, and it can cause factions and cliques. And people do and will form factions and cliques. And cliques and factions are very dangerous in the church. There are sins common to cliques that must be guarded against. The sins of being exclusive and shutting others out. The sin of feeling superior and better and above others. The sin of believing that you have more rights than others. And the sin of thinking that you are due more attention than other people. 
And in the early church, there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. Now in those days, a widow being a quote unquote lowly woman in that culture without a husband was in a hopeless state. Everyone else had the normal means of support by labor or various means, but widows did not, and so a distribution was made for them. The early church practiced a form of welfare by taking care of their widows. Now the Hebrew widows were not being neglected. They were being well taken care of, but the Greek widows were being neglected, and this caused murmuring in the church. You see, some were getting preferential treatment while some were being neglected. The word complaint in that verse is the Greek word gongusmos. Isn't that a great word? Gongusmos. It means to murmur. Murmuring is always deadly. Murmuring is always wrong. Though there was a problem, murmuring made it worse. Murmuring always makes it worse. In fact, the sin of neglect is the speck in the eye that we read about in Matthew chapter 7. The murmuring is the plank. The murmuring is the long two-by-four. It makes it a lot worse. The children of Israel wandering through the desert. I mean, that was hard enough. But murmuring in the desert made it all the worse. So here we have the early church, and now they have prejudice, and now they're murmuring. These Greek-speaking Christians began to complain, but they did not complain to those in authority, those who were responsible. They simply complained among themselves. With a murmuring attitude, they spread discontent throughout the whole body of Christians. And this is still the devil's favorite trick to divide Christians. You murmur when you complain about a problem, but not to the one who can do something about it. When you complain to other people who are perhaps involved, but who are not in a position to help, that is murmuring. And it is always deadly. Murmuring brought the judgment of God upon the children of Israel in the wilderness in the Old Testament days. And murmuring is always the mark of querulous, discontented, unhappy spirit. In this case, it caused dissension throughout the whole congregation. The church was now under attack from within, storm clouds rising. And many churches since have been rendered absolutely useless by murmuring, by the spread of discontent and of strife that has never been brought to focus or brought for remedy to the proper constituted authorities, but was allowed simply to seethe and ferment throughout the body and to create division and schism. This was the attack by the enemy to try to destroy the effectiveness of the early church. We hope you have enjoyed today's edition of Calvary's Way with Gib Allen. Thanks again for listening, and we do hope you will join us again tomorrow as Pastor Gib teaches and we learn to walk Calvary's Way.